Welcome to Beyond the Entertainment, where we take a look at the lives of those who entertain us. I'm talking about the tragedies, scandals, and crimes committed by them or to them. No one is off limits. We're going to talk about everyone from sports entertainers, Hollywood, YouTubers, and everyone in between. Everyone has a story to tell, and I'm here to tell you theirs. it's Stephanie and I'm back with another story. Today I'm going to tell you about Amy Winehouse, which I'm sure is a name we're all familiar with, and unfortunately she is part of the infamous 27 Club. I still listen to her music to this day because she had such an incredibly unique and powerful voice. She wrote songs about her life and her feelings and they were really relatable. Her style of music was something different. I enjoyed how she mixed all different genres together. I wanted to talk about her life and musical success because she is somebody who did what we all wish we could, live out our dreams. I think it's important to share her struggles she had in life as I know many people can relate to them in one way or another. Her family loved her and supported her until the end. Before I get started, I wanted to give some credit to her father, Mitch Winehouse, for the book Amy, My Daughter that I listened to when preparing for this story. He looks back really fondly on her life and accomplishments, and I'm sure it took a lot of strength to tell her story. He was there for her and with her through the good and the bad. No parent wants their child to go before them. I honestly would just read the book to you if I could, but instead I'll recommend you read it so you can get all the information that I left out for time's sake. With that being said, I'll bring you right back to the beginning. Amy was born on September 14, 1983 in Southgate, London, England, to parents Janice Collins and Mitch Winehouse. They already had a son named Alex, and they were elated to have a daughter. Her brother Alex would dote over his new baby sister, often spending hours next to her crib and falling asleep on the floor. She learned to walk on her first birthday, and her father says from then on she was a handful. Mitch describes some times in her youth when she would run off and hide on a trip to a park she ran off and seemed to just disappear. Her parents were worried sick that she'd been abducted and had called the police to help search for her. After five hours, a friend of his brother had called and said that she was with her. Amy had saw her in the park with her kids and told her that her mom and brother had left her there, so she took her to her house to make sure she was safe. Amy would often hide in clothes racks at the department store, once popping out to try to scare her father who was frantically looking for her at the moment. I can honestly say that I remember doing this as a child and often having to remember that if I turned away too long for my own children, I'd be in the same situation. It's like a parent's worst nightmare to have a child missing, but those clothes racks are so tempting to hide in. They don't understand what they're doing is causing panic and fear in their parents because for a child, they're just playing a game. When Amy was in elementary school, she would often get into trouble. She was considered disruptive because she played pranks and loved to be the center of attention. Sounds a lot like me when I was in elementary school, not gonna lie. When she was about 10, she was inspired by the group Salt and Pepper and made a rap group with her friend called Sweet and Sour. When I heard this, I laughed so hard as I remember being a kid and wanting to mimic my favorite musicians and musical groups in my bedroom with my friends, you know, singing and making up dances. I just love the name they chose for their group. Her life was also changing about this time because her parents were getting divorced. Her father, Mitch, had fallen in love with someone else, and instead of staying in his marriage, he decided it was best to leave. 
He loved his wife still and thought the world of her, but he was just in love with somebody else. Amy's brother Alex took it pretty hard, but she never seemed to let on that it bothered her. When Mitch asked if she wanted to talk about it, she said, you're still my dad and mom is still my mom. So what's there to talk about? This is the earliest example of how she kept her emotions inside and she continued to do this throughout her life. He often recalled her as being very private in that way. Her musical style was very influenced by her family. Her grandmother loved jazz and had passed that on to her father who obviously passed that to Amy. She loved Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn who her father and his family had met through his mother's ex-boyfriend. Amy loved hearing the stories her grandmother and father would tell about their time going to jazz shows and meeting the musicians. Her grandmother got her into Susie Earnshaw Theater School, and she was able to learn tap after being fascinated by it from the musical she watched on TV. She also learned to develop her voice so she could be like Sarah Vaughn. She loved how she was able to use her voice like an instrument and wanted to learn how she could do it too. When Amy joined her brother at Ashmole, he had a guitar that he had learned to play. Amy decided she wanted to play too, and he patiently taught her how. She began writing her own song shortly after, and one was called I Need More Time, which she played for her father later in life shortly before her death. He said it was good enough to be in one of her albums. She was often seen writing in a notebook she kept with her in case inspiration struck. She would fill it with lines for songs to use in the future. She struggled at Ashmole because she was bored. She was incredibly smart, but wouldn't apply that in a school setting. Her parents were often called into the school to discuss her behavior. The head of the class would say he knew it was her before she entered the office because she would be singing Fly Me to the Moon so loud the entire school could hear her. She would stay up late doing puzzles, Sudoku, math problems, and anything else to not sleep and then not want to get up for school. I have a similar problem with my youngest in the getting up part, but not the same before bed delay tactics. It's more about YouTube and texting friends these days. Amy decided she would rather go to the Sylvia Young Performing Arts School and had applied without her parents even knowing. She was only 12, and they never figured out where she heard about it because they weren't advertised anywhere. But when she auditioned, she received a half scholarship for her singing and dancing. Amy was thrilled to be going to a school where she could perform regularly. She looked forward to the challenge of schoolwork while also working on her singing talent. She actually did well here, but still found ways to get into trouble. She was often late for school, But the biggest battle she had at the performing arts school was their rule on jewelry. Amy would show up with her nose ring, bracelets, earrings, and belly button ring and be told to take them off, but she would just put them back in in minutes. They offered her a little bit of leeway because she was incredibly talented and they wanted her to succeed. Her father said she wasn't trying to be mischievous, but just expressing herself. I would have to say I agree with him as I have many piercings and tattoos myself and it is a form of self-expression. It isn't hurting anyone, and we've only as a society really started to allow people to express themselves in this way, with no repercussions in our jobs and schools. While at the Sylvia Young Theater School, she started to get paid work as a young teenager, like some of the other students. She appeared in some TV sketches and theater performances, which excited her, as any young person would be to get the chance to do the things you dream of. Unfortunately, she had to leave the theater school, as her academic side of school was still not going very well. They were constantly trying to get her to put more effort and even recognize that she was bored because the work was too easy. Even after bumping her up a grade, she was going to fail her exams, so her parents thought it was best for her to go back to a regular school and focus mainly on her academics. Her parents sent her to the All Girls Mount School in Mill Hill, which had a strong music program, which is what helped her adjust. 
She still struggled, but was able to pass her exams and then requested she be allowed to go back to a performing arts school. She didn't want to be in formal education. When she was 16, she went to the Brit School to study musical theater and excelled while she was there. She was only there for less than a year, but left a lasting impression on her teachers and fellow students through her talents. Sylvia Young from her first theater school had stayed in touch with Amy even after she left school as she recognized the incredible talent she had. When Amy was 16, Sylvia contacted Bill Ashton, who was the founder and life president of the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. She wanted to get Amy an audition, but he said they don't do auditions and just to send her to them. And when she felt ready, she could just join in. Soon she began singing for them and even sang for the CD they recorded. Her longtime friend and soul singer, Tyler James, was working with a PR agent from Brilliant and was performing in bars and clubs. He wanted Amy to give him a demo so he could give it to his agent. She eventually gave him a recording of songs that she sang while she was performing with the orchestra. He told her to add a few more songs, so she did, and sent them to his agent in a bag with stickers of hearts and stars. At first, the agent thought she had stolen the demo, as he was blown away at how she sounded so much older than her age. Tyler's agent, Nick, went to see her perform, and he eventually became a lifelong friend to Amy. He introduced her to his boss, who was head of talent at Brilliant. He wanted her to sign a contract shortly after meeting, and her parents signed the contract for her. She was only 17 at the time, so her parents helped manage her business-wise and guided her financially, but Amy would always be 100% in charge. Amy always appreciated the help and guidance, as her family was very close, and she knew they would always have her best interests at heart. However, Brilliant was bought out shortly after she signed. Even though that could have been a bad thing for her as she was new, she was not forgotten. 19 had bought part of the company and they offered a contract that her parents had signed as well. Her new contract with 19 came with 250 pounds a week so she could concentrate on writing her music. She began regularly performing jazz at the Copton Club and word was getting out about her singing. Soon she had many interested parties from the music industry coming to see her. Annie Lennox even came to the club to see Amy and she had told her father that she was going to be a big star. In case you don't know Annie Lennox, she's a Scottish... In case you don't know who Annie Lennox is, she's a Scottish singer-songwriter and activist who had big hits like Walking on Broken Glass and Sweet Dreams are made of this. Soon she had signed on with EMI to work with producer Salam Remy for her first album titled Frank and went to Miami to start writing and recording. Amy would help with a few songs for her friend Tyler James while she was there as well. Amy up to this point had never let her dad hear or read any of her songs she had written. He knew she was an incredibly talented singer but didn't know about her writing. After he was given a sampler of her album, he was thrilled with what she had written. Although when asking about some of the lines, she became a little embarrassed and said she didn't want to talk about it. Her dad was helping her with tracks to put in the final cut of the album, and she had snatched one away because it was about him. Her songs were always about her life, and some of that was pretty personal. She didn't exactly want her dad to listen to a relationship song with sexual connotations, nor did she want him to hear what she wrote about his divorce from her mother. She had bore her soul and feelings into this music, things she had been keeping to herself for a long time. I'm sure she was feeling vulnerable and protective of her private thoughts now that she had actually expressed them. Regardless, her father wasn't upset about anything she wrote about as he was amazed how she wrote and turned things that happened into her life into lyrics. When her record was almost complete, she signed with Island Universal because they had a good reputation with their treatment of new artists. Island gave Amy an advance of £250,000, and she also received an advance from the production company EMI for another £250,000. 
Once the album sold and the money was paid back, she would be able to receive royalties off of the sales. Amy would need to live off of this money until she was receiving royalties, so she looked to her parents to help her manage her funds. She was staying with her mother and her mother's boyfriend at the time of the advance, but wanted to move out and be on her own. She decided to get a flat with her childhood best friend, Juliet, and they were enjoying being on their own and being adults. This newfound independence is when she started to smoke pot. She was an adult, and even though her father didn't like it, he knew he couldn't really do anything about it, and she wasn't using any hard drugs at the time. She was actually very against them. Leading up to her album release, she started to do more shows and performances to get her name and her music out. She loved performing, but needed to work a little on how she did perform. She wanted to play her guitar while she sang, but then her face would be down and she wouldn't be engaging the audience. Sometimes she would turn around and not even be facing them. The people attending were still blown away by her voice, though, and would be excited to see her. They just wanted her to do things a little bit differently so that she would engage with the audience and they would know that she was happy to be there performing for them. When her lease was up, she decided to buy a flat in Camden because it would be a good investment and it would be a place that would be all hers. It was also a secure area that you had to be buzzed in so her parents felt that she would be safe there. They helped her figure out her down payment, loan, and how much she could spend every week so her finances wouldn't run out. She wanted a fail-safe on her money to make sure she wasn't spending on things that maybe she didn't need or giving it away to everybody, so every check would need two signatures. One would be hers, and the other would have to be her father, mother, or the accountant. At the time, she was trying to be responsible, and I commend her for this. She was a very young adult still at the time, I believe about 19, and had created a solid financial plan with her parents' help. Most people that age wouldn't care and go buy everything they ever wanted, even if they didn't need it just because they had the money. Of course, only worrying about it when it did run out. Just before her first album was released, she had released a single Stronger Than Me, and it would peak at 71 in the UK charts. It was actually the lowest peaking single on the charts throughout her entire career. But regardless of that, it still earned her an Ivar Novella Award in 2004. She was so excited by this and couldn't wait to tell her biggest fan, her grandmother. Her album Frank was released on October 20th, 2003, and it would peak at number 13 on the UK charts on January 13th, 2004, and eventually it would hit double platinum status. Of course, with this success would come more gigs, and Amy struggled with anxiety before her shows. She had begun to start drinking a lot more, and in the summer of 2004 is when she had first visited rehab, but for only three hours. She was supposed to go for at least a week or two, but when they told her she would need at least a couple of months, she decided she wasn't going to stay. Amy wanted to do it all by herself. In early 2005, Amy would meet her future husband, Blake Fielder Civil. When their relationship started, he was already in a relationship making Amy the other woman. Despite this information, she fell head over heels in love with him and actually had his name tattooed on her after only a month. I'm not judging her for this, but I personally couldn't do that. I only have my kids' names tattooed on me, and I do have some that are for certain people in my life, but no names. This is also when she changed her look and started to style her hair in that beehive style and do a little bit more dramatic eyeliner. She really loved the look of the 1960s girl groups and it looked really good on her. I don't think I could ever pull it off, nor would I have the patience to do my hair or makeup every day. Blake was very much into hard drugs and would do cocaine and heroin in front of Amy for a while, but she would only stick to alcohol and pot. They would continue to repeat a cycle of breaking up and getting back together for about a year. When Amy was ready to start another record, 
She wasn't sure about staying with 19 as her contract was about to run out. She didn't want to leave them as she had made many friends there, but they were very kind about her signing with Ray Cosbert at Metropolis and she remained close with many people she had met there. Ray set her up with Mark Ronson and she began working on Back to Black. Much like her first album, Frank, was about her life and relationship with her first love, Back to Black was about Blake. At the time, Amy had a new boyfriend, Alex Clare. And for her, writing the songs about her ex was cathartic and a way to move forward. She didn't like to live in the past, but writing about her life is what made her music so good. Just before she finished her album, her grandmother had passed away from cancer. She was very close with her grandmother, and she was absolutely devastated by her death. There's some speculation that the effect this had on her caused her to dive into addiction as she wanted to numb that pain. I can understand how losing someone you're incredibly close to can cause you to spiral downhill. She was already using alcohol to calm her anxiety, so using it to forget her pain isn't exactly a big jump. When Back to Black was released in October of 2006, it sold more than 70,000 copies in its first two weeks. It would reach number one in the UK charts in January of 2007, and by the end of the year would be certified six times platinum. 2007 was also the year that Amy and Alex would split up as Blake was back in the picture. His drug use would become something they would start to do together, and unfortunately she would start smoking heroin and crack cocaine with him. She was still drinking more than she should have, and when she would be doing promotional appearances on television, you could see that she was clearly intoxicated. One appearance on the BBC for Nevermind the Buzzcocks, the other people were taking digs at her for her drinking and suspected drug use. But she seemed to take it in stride and reply with witty comebacks. She was young, her album was doing really well, and she honestly was just living her life, even if that meant drugs and alcohol were involved. I know of a lot of people, myself included, who did things in their early 20s that they may not be proud of and did some experimentation. I'm not saying that I condone this or that I recommend you doing it just because you are young, but for some people, it is part of life and it's just part of their experience growing up. We all have to make mistakes. In May of 2007, Amy went on holiday in Miami with Blake, where they eloped much to the displeasure of her family. They wanted to be able to attend, but she felt it was the right thing for them to do. I can't judge as I eloped, but I can admit that it was a mistake that has been quite difficult to rid myself of. Now, it's known that Amy and Blake are doing drugs and drinking together, which does end up taking its toll on her body rather quickly. In August of 2007, Amy has a seizure and is hospitalized. This starts the beginning of the barrage of slanderous articles in the paper and magazines. For the next two years, the papers would buy stories and print lies on the papers. They would plant people to cause scenes, and had no problem villainizing her if it would sell copies. They would create stories to go with pictures just to make her seem incredibly out of control. Mind you, she was a little out of control, but not in the way she was portrayed. Blake's own parents would try to financially benefit from stories about Amy that were often lies as well as made to make their son look like the good guy. If I tried to include all the details of how they did Amy dirty, I would be talking to you for hours, but from this point until her death, they would perpetuate a reputation for Amy that I considered to be incredibly harmful. After a few months of trying to get Amy to rehab unsuccessfully, Amy's father and her manager Ray thought that getting her back to work would be good for her. If she was just sitting around bored, it could help. They didn't think another album would be a good push, but she could try doing a European tour. Her new album was doing amazing on a global scale, and they were going to push Frank out for a global release as well. As much as everyone wanted Amy to go on tour, they didn't want her to bring Blake along, but she couldn't be persuaded to go with someone else. 
I get she wants her husband with her, but they were thinking if he wasn't there for her performances, she would be doing better since she would most likely be sober. They had a rough start to the tour since Amy and Blake were under the influence and ended up missing their flight to Berlin. They were able to get another flight to meet up with the band and the first two shows of the tour went well. After the second show, they were arrested for smoking pot in the hotel room in Norway, but were lucky enough to get away with only a fine of 350 pounds. Things continued to go fairly well with her performances until November of 2007, when issues with Blake's charges of grievous bodily harm with intent were in full swing. He and his friend had brutally beat a man up outside of a bar that resulted in him needing 12 hours of reconstructive surgery for his face. Amy was terrified of him going to prison, but for everyone around her, that could be what she needs to get sober. Time away from Blake. Blake would make this fear a reality by trying to bribe the man he had assaulted to drop the charges, which caused him to be arrested for perverting the course of justice. The Daily Mirror had actually informed detectives about the bribe after having two people act as middlemen for the payoff. This would put some suspicion on Amy, though, as how else would Blake get the money for the bribe if he wasn't going to get it from her? But you might recall the arrangements in place for Amy's money, and without a second signature from her parents or the accountant, she wouldn't be able to give that amount of money to him. While Blake was in prison for the bribe, awaiting trial, Amy was preparing for her UK tour. Her first show would take place in Birmingham National Indoor Arena on November 16, 2007. Her father recalled that she had been sober and acted normal up until he left her dressing room, which was only 30 minutes prior to her going on stage. By the time she got on stage, she was staggering and slurring her words. The crowd became upset and booed her. She responded by yelling and threatening her fans. Her next two shows would go really well, though, and she seemed to be sober throughout her performances. After the third show, she had expressed to her manager, Ray, that she wanted to get clean. After Blake was refused bail again on November 23rd, her next show wasn't the best, but the rest of the tour would end up being canceled. Her manager thought that focusing on her health was more important than the tour, but she also needed to commit to going to rehab. To start 2008, Amy went on vacation with her friends to Mustique and was determined to be clean from drugs. She was trying to get a visa to go to the U.S. for the Grammys to perform and was nominated for an award as well. She had to take a drug test first and she wanted to be able to pass it. She was going to doctor's appointments to keep an eye on her physical health and the effects the drugs had had on her body. They knew she would need to be in a facility to keep her off them long enough to pass the test for the visa as her appointment was January 22, 2008. After The Sun posted a story with pictures of her using drugs, her manager said she wouldn't be allowed to go to the Grammys to perform or the Brit Awards unless she actually went to rehab. They weren't going to drop her as an artist, but he wanted her to know that they were serious about her getting clean. She went into Capio Nightingale for a few days and was then transferred to the London Clinic for a few more days to be seen by medical staff for dehydration before returning to Capio Nightingale for her rehab treatment. Unfortunately, drugs were smuggled into Amy through a teddy bear at Capio, but were quickly discovered and disposed of before she could do much of it. She was unable to get her visa as she still had trace amounts of cocaine in her system. Her manager had already set her up with a live link performance just in case, and she ended up performing for the Grammys via that from London. It went incredibly well, and her inability to get the visa only motivated her more to stay clean. She ended up winning five Grammys for Record of the Year, Best New Artist, Best Pop Vocal Album, Song of the Year, and Best Female Pop Vocal. For once, the tabloids would print stories of her success and awards instead of bashing her. The battle wasn't quite over for her as she started using again on and off, 
but in March, she decided she wanted to get clean. In April of 2008, she would start a drug replacement program at her home with two nurses present to administer her medication and her withdrawal symptoms. The biggest problem with this was that she couldn't use any drugs for 12 hours or she couldn't get the drug replacement. One day, shortly after she could successfully begin her replacement program, she was in the pub with friends and saw a baby. She wanted to be a mom, and her dad was hopeful that this revelation for her would be one that would help her get clean. In May, Blake filed for divorce after news broke out that Amy was having an affair. She would be nominated and won another Ivor Novella Award for Best Song Musically and Lyrically for Love is a Losing Game and was doing well with her drug replacement program. She was still drinking occasionally, but she was clean from heroin and that was the biggest battle they wanted to win. June 6th, Blake would plead guilty and they would be waiting for sentencing to see how much longer he would stay in prison. The hope was the longer he was there, the more time clean Amy would have so she could stay that way. June 16th, Amy would have another seizure. And upon examination, they would see that she had buildup in her lungs and some nodules as well. She had to change her lifestyle or she would die. She was able to recover from the seizure, stayed on her medication, and after six days, she was able to rehearse for her performance at Nelson Mandela's birthday celebration. Her performance was incredible, and aside from a few drinks, she stayed clean the whole time. After a relapse, her father had employed security to stay with her to keep the drugs and riffraff out of her home and away from her. She would perform a few more gigs before they decided in May 2008 to take that pressure off of her so she could focus on her recovery. She was struggling, but she definitely was trying. July 21st, 2008, the weight of Blake possibly returning was gone, as he would have a release date of September 6, 2009, so that is plenty of time to keep working on her recovery. Another scare would come soon after this, where Amy was rushed to the hospital by ambulance. She asked someone for headache pills, and they had given her a sedative for anxiety, in which she would have an allergic reaction. She would continue her cycle of getting better and relapsing through most of 2008, would have good shows and lose money on cancellations. It was kind of a vicious cycle. In October, she was preparing to start designing clothes that would be launched in October of 2010. And she was really excited about it. She would find inspiration from everywhere she visited and the people that she would see. She would often admit herself to the London Clinic for help. And when Blake was released in early November 2008, She seemed to finally be done with him. He had even visited Amy at the London Clinic, given her drugs, and she turned them over to her father untouched. She started 2009 off by going to St. Lucia for an extended vacation, and aside from her drinking, she remained clean. She was hospitalized in February only because she had run out of her drug replacement medication, which had caused her to have withdrawal symptoms, but once she received more, she was okay. She had fully stopped using heroin and would never touch it again. She had beaten one addiction, but her addiction to alcohol was still there and that would be her next battle. She was taking responsibility this time, and if she started to feel ill from days of drinking heavily, she would check herself into the hospital. She could rehydrate, sober up safely, and she couldn't get a drink in there. It was a big improvement from before when you would practically have to drag her to the hospital for heroin, and now she was checking herself in for alcohol. By April of 2009, Amy was preparing for her divorce and looking forward to the future. She wanted to find love again, and she wanted to eventually have children. Ray wanted to try to get her into doing shows, but she was tired of her music. Her songs were mostly about men she wanted to leave in the past, and some of the back-to-black songs about Blake hurt to sing even if she was prepared to move on. In June, she was still in St. Lucia, and her father Mitch had come down to visit. 
I wanted to tell this story because I think it shows her true nature as a caring person. She introduced her dad to an elderly man named George. He had a ruptured hernia and he couldn't afford his medical care. Amy, Mitch, and George, supported by Amy's security team, went to the hospital. They discussed the cost of a surgery and recovery, and Amy, with her father, agreed to cover the cost in full and paid his bill before leaving him to get the treatment that he so desperately needed. Their next stop was to a man on the beach about some horses. The local children couldn't afford to pay to rent his horses to ride, so Amy had rented all of his horses every day, all day, for the children to ride for an entire month. They were able to settle the debt with him for what money Mitch had left on him. In July, Amy finally left St. Lucia and went to court on charges from when she hit a woman in the face at a bar. The woman had come up and put her arms around her and Amy was just scared. She said she pushed her away and just wanted her to leave her alone, so the charges were dropped. I think the court showed some compassion to Amy here. Just because you are famous, it doesn't give anyone the right to touch you if you have not given them permission to do so. By the end of August, her divorce from Blake had been finalized. By September, she was having more sober days than drunk days, and she was ready to start writing again. She was hopeful that this time she could get her visa to go to the U.S. and work with her producers. Unfortunately, her visa was denied, though, for alcohol and pot. She was upset and had a few bad days of drinking and bad behavior. She would continue to use the London Clinic when she needed to sober up safely, though, so at least she was still using her resources that were available. During the end of 2009 and in the beginning of 2010, Blake was in the picture on and off, but she was still clean despite the concerns that everyone had. She went to Jamaica in February of 2010 to start on her third album, and while she was gone, her father started to look for her new home in Camden. She wanted to be back home where she was happy. He found a place that she was very excited about and began to renovate it for a more 60s aesthetic. At the end of March, she was recording a track for Quincy Jones' 75th birthday celebration album, It's My Party, which was originally a hit for Leslie Gore in 1963. Soon after, she would finally quit Blake and fell for Reg Travis, whom she dated until her death. They met at a pub. He's a film director who had the aesthetics of a 1950s film actor. She was finally with a man that had stabilizing effect in her life. She was recording and had some good performances. She was in and out of the clinic when she would relapse into drinking, but she was also having longer periods of sobriety. 2010 was a year of progress despite any struggles she may have had. Amy started 2011 strong with some shows in Brazil and had spent the first weeks completely sober. She had a couple drinks but didn't get drunk upon her return home. She would experience another seizure, but it was not due to her drinking, but a risk of her being sober and detoxing without medical supervision. She would continue her periods of sobriety, followed by binge drinking, and would occasionally still struggle with self-harm when she was upset. On May 11, 2011, when she was in the London clinic, they ran some blood tests. Her potassium and glucose levels were high, which could result in heart problems. Her long periods of sobriety, followed by binge drinking and then detox, were almost more harmful to her body than if she had just stayed drinking the entire time. On May 17th, she had been in a coma from her drinking, and in less than 24 hours, she discharged herself from the clinic. Her doctor would then decide that she couldn't treat her anymore because she just couldn't help her stop drinking, no matter what she did or said. She made sure to leave her with her medical history and the events from her previous couple days. May 24th, she went to rehab at the Priory and checked out on the 31st, agreeing to return for outpatient treatment. She would stay sober until June when she was on her Eastern European tour. Right before she left, she said she didn't want to do the tour after previously being so excited. 
The first show on the 19th was terrible. She was drunk and the audience booed her. She couldn't remember where she was or even the lyrics to her songs. This would result in the rest of her shows being canceled. Her stage fright and anxiety had been too much for her. She came home June 22nd and was sober until the day before she died. On July 22nd, she went to a gig for a girl she mentored named Dion. She was often referred to as her goddaughter at the iTunes Festival. When she got home that night, her security said she seemed tipsy, but she was okay. He had checked on her that night, and she was singing and playing drums in her room. When he checked on her later, he had thought that she was asleep. But when he came back to check on her again in a few hours, he had realized that she wasn't asleep. She hadn't even moved. Her cause of death was ruled misadventure, and it was determined to be from alcohol poisoning. The level of alcohol in her blood was 416 milligrams per 100 milliliters of blood. 350 milligrams per 100 milliliters was considered to be fatal. They had a private funeral for her with friends and family on July 26, 2011, and she was then cremated as her grandmother had been. When her family went to her home to retrieve Amy's personal belongings, they were greeted by mourning fans who had been putting tributes, photographs, and messages outside of her home. She was loved and adored by her fans. The song Body and Soul, she recorded with Tony Bennett, was released on September 14, 2011, and the family, along with Universal, released a compilation of her recordings that were supposed to be for her third album and extra tracks that she didn't use in the other two that she released. It was titled Lioness, Hidden Treasures, and was released on December 2, 2011. Amy was an incredible singer and songwriter, but more than that, she was a woman who was struggling. She wanted so desperately to live and fight for her addiction, but like so many others, the addiction had won. She was villainized by the media that paid for stories regardless of the fact that many were false. I'm sure an ounce of compassion and privacy could have gone so far for her and her family. The Amy Winehouse Foundation, set up by her father in her memory, works to help those who can't afford the care they so desperately need, which is something Amy had done herself on more than one occasion. She didn't care if they were a stranger. She only saw a person who needed help and couldn't afford to get it. She was more than what she was portrayed, and I am so humbled to have been able to learn these things about her. Her story has touched my heart, and I hope it has yours as well. You can learn about the foundation and donate at amywinehousefoundation.org. If you are struggling with addiction or eating disorders or harming yourself, please remember that there is help out there for you and you can fight it. It isn't easy, but every day you fight it is worth celebrating. I hope that you have enjoyed hearing Amy's story and that you learned a few things about her that you didn't know before. If you have any suggestions for future stories, please send them in to beyondtheentertainmentpod at gmail.com. I'd love to know what you want to hear next. And if you would like to keep up with us on social media, I have opened up a Twitter. You can follow me at at BTE underscore pod. And I am posting updates on Instagram, Taylor underscore BTE. Take a little time and dance in the rain or sing your heart out. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Beyond the Entertainment.